as a kid that went to college and had um, a big uh, a, a big weight of figuring out how it was all going to be financed. I did not come from a, a, a family of means. So figuring out how I could pay the bills was definitely part of my aspiration. And I wanted to have an impact in the world to try and prove that you can do good and do well. I was very interested in particular in the civil rights movement, a wonderful story of the human capacity to face adversity and to work to make tomorrow better than today. And as a young person, I found that very motivating and inspiring. I ultimately aspired to join that process in some way. And I think it helped shape my choice of majors ultimately as a government major and an African studies minor. This is What Are You Going to Do With That? A podcast where we explore everyday folks' decisions to study the humanities as undergraduates and their pathways to fulfilling careers. I'm Scott Muir of the National Humanities Alliance, an organization dedicated to promoting the value of the humanities on campuses and in communities. In our first season, we shared stories that helped debunk misleading myths about humanities majors' career prospects and highlight some of the limitless possibilities for applying humanities knowledge and skills in today's workforce. In this season, we examine how humanities majors both do well for themselves and do good for the world. After all, the humanities invite you to think deeply about big problems and the various ways one can be part of their solution. It's no secret that we face some enormous challenges in this century. Climate change, racism, inequality, ethical concerns surrounding new technologies, misinformation, and other threats to democracy. The humanities classroom is a perfect place to contemplate these complex problems and craft a vision for a better future. Ultimately, all of these problems are human problems. They require human solutions. Across industries, employers are recognizing that they need folks with humanities backgrounds who can understand these problems in all their complexity, innovate creative solutions, and persuade others to get involved. In this episode, we meet Debo Adegbole. Over the course of a legal career that has spanned the public, private, and nonprofit sectors, Debo has tackled some of our society's most complex issues. He successfully argued landmark voting rights cases before the Supreme Court, advocated for sound public and corporate policy to combat discrimination, and partnered with big tech corporations to address bias in artificial intelligence. Here's Debo on how the humanities imparted the skills, values, and breadth of perspective that empowered him to take on these big challenges. So my, my origin story, I think, has a lot to do with my interest in the humanities and desire to explore the humanities. I am the son of Irish and Nigerian immigrants to the United States. Uh, my parents came from two different continents, two very different parts of the world. Each was the eldest of six kids that set out to pursue their dreams in the United States, and they met in New York. Two very different cultures, different religious denominations, different races, different continents. I, I was able, through my familial experience and 
growing up in that Irish Nigerian household to understand something about the ties that knit us together as people and as human beings. When I was a young boy, we had friends from all over the world who would come to visit us and share their stories. And so I think the first thing that that did for me is to have a real interest in learning about people and their individual stories and taking uh, diverse and ranging backgrounds as an opportunity for ex exploration and wanting to dig more deeply to understand more about human relationships, about arts and culture, about the rules that hold society together, about frictions uh, and how we can work through frictions and challenges and what the stories of history are about the way in which societies have evolved. That was sort of grist for the mill in my household. And it became something that I wanted to fold in to my studies. There, there certainly were some important teachers that I had along the way. There was an African-American eighth grade teacher, Clint Ingram. And so Clint Ingram, in a sense, was the first Renaissance man who I met, who bridged these different interests. Not only was he a history teacher and, a, and the eighth grade teacher, but he also was the chorus teacher. And so he would lead us in song, often singing songs of the civil rights movement and um, other parts of history. And to see the way in which Clint integrated his historical teachings, Clint Ing Ingram was very important. I did not go straight to college. And although I applied to college right away, there were some things going on in my family and household that made me feel that it would be good for me to continue to be at home. I had a younger brother and I wanted to make sure that things were working out for him and that he was on track. So I took the unusual step of not going directly to college, delaying my um, college education, working at various jobs in, in New York City, over the course of what became three years. So I, I did have a good sense of my goals and I did get to college knowing that I ultimately wanted to see how my Connecticut college time could prepare me to study the law. I had an interest in the law. I had an, an aspiration to be a lawyer one day. I didn't have any lawyers in my family. I didn't know many lawyers. It was a notional um, conception I'd had about what I might do, not even knowing all of what it took to do it. But um, I, I was fortunate to have some people who were ahead of me suggest um, a certain professor who might be a good uh, challenge and, and, and match for my um, penchant for engaging in vigorous debate. Um, I think that I think that's that may be the uh, nicest way to put it. And so, essentially, as a challenge, I was told to enroll in Professor Bill Frazier's government class. One way to think about college is to take interesting classes with great professors, and that if you follow people that are talented, um, you will learn things, and they will open new worlds to you. Bill Frazier was was a much more conservative thinker than I was. 
and we didn't see the world in exactly the same way. He was an extraordinarily um, bright man, a very, a very compelling uh, lecturer, and would engage in a very sort of direct, almost Socratic type dialogue and exchange with students. And so he, you really had to do your readings and be on your toes. When you stepped into Bill Frazier's class, he and I had a, a particularly um, good relationship. And I, in many of his classes, became his foil. Uh, and we would get into the debates of the day. That was the thing that sharpened my mind and helped me become a deeper thinker about the things I cared about precisely because I was going to be challenged in my professional life. That's what I'm called upon to do all the time, is to be prepared to think about what your arguments are, what the strengths and weaknesses of those arguments are, and to defend your terrain and to express it clearly. And to think about how to marshal your story and your argument in a way that can be compelling for somebody that holds that skepticism. And that journey for me began with Bill Frazier whipping me into shape in New London, Connecticut. My friends and I joked at the end of the road that I ultimately had a Frazier major because I think I had five classes with Bill Frazier over the time in, in college. And although I took many other classes with many other compelling professors, I, I took courses that I really grappled with and struggled a little bit with, which were political philosophy classes, contemplating structures of how the world might be as opposed to how the world is. There's a, a kid who was very focused on thinking about how rules and the structures of society impact real people's lives. I had a high degree of skepticism that it, that it had real value. And the, the great irony is that I can't tell you how many times I have returned to think about how we um, might imagine what we're trying to achieve in a society that values and strives for equality and, and very often doesn't um, come close enough to achieving it. I probably rely as much or more on that sort of bigger thinking of the structures of society and the challenges and trying creatively to find ways to address them than, than on particular mastery of the legal doctrine or the, the, the um, case law at issue. Both are important. And in some ways, the African studies minor and the government major became um, interlocking foundations of the career that I would go on to. And I, I think one of the reasons I was drawn to African studies is that I, I wanted to learn more and to explore on my own some of the history and culture um, from an intellectual level, from other thinkers, and, and have it be broader than the direct experience that I had. I should say that a dimension of it also um, took the bridge from the African continent to African-Americans um, in, 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 uh, in, in this country. And there, there was a, a sense in which my studies covered the diaspora of, of Africans in different places and in different parts 
of the humanities. And that, that was really wonderful. I wanted to understand the social and political dynamics. I wanted to understand something about literature. And so I had these great professors and we used to have a great time talking about the writings of Wole Soyinka or Chinua Achebe and reading the books and, and talking about how we, we thought these narrative arcs, um, aligned with our thinking or opened up new vistas that we had thought about. Um, I guess I would add a third leg to the stool. And I, I took a number of sociology classes as well. And um, there I was studying the structures of inequality I, and putting those three things together, understanding the social organization of society and, and inequality, the overlay of what is government's relationship in promoting equality or um, advancing structural inequality. The um, African and, and African-American um, studies and history, those things ultimately very well prepared me to grapple as a, as a law student and now as a lawyer. So much of the work that I do as a civil rights lawyer is thinking about the claims of history, how the claims of history have shaped our society, have laid down markers for statutory protections to try and narrow the space between the high constitutional promises that we make and the practices that we live by. Closing that gap. Uh, in my senior year, um, internships in the New London Public Defender's Office, the first law offices that I ever had any um, real exposure to, um, seeing how the public defenders in that community represented people that couldn't afford representation on their own, but were facing uh, criminal charges at, in, in various types of cases. And ultimately, I had the opportunity to write an independent study, two independent study papers about how the right to have counsel provided in criminal cases evolved. And so this was a moment where I was studying the academic aspects um, that underpinned the New London Public Defender's Office and folks that needed representation pro bono or without fee. That has been a part of my legal career from the beginning of my days as a lawyer through the present day. Um, being a voice for the voiceless, um, being prepared to defend people's rights, notwithstanding the difficult circumstances in which they find themselves. Part of what I do as a civil and human rights lawyer is to understand the, the circumstances and the, the structures and challenges that different types of people face in a range of contexts. And having come from a, a liberal arts study, I, I think that you're, you just are very well prepared for not knowing exactly what comes at you, but having a framework and as, you know, essentially a rubric through which to um, proceed in uncharted territories. And, and that was something that 
I think I continue to work on and, and benefit from. Frankly, it was terrifying when I was a junior lawyer and you, you know, you hear all these words and terms and, and you just don't know what it means. It's almost like you're studying a different language, but over time there are these accretions of knowledge and you start to have confidence in your ability to hone in on the things that matter and separate the things that don't. I began litigating voting rights cases, which are very complex cases. They involve history. They involve complex statutory frameworks. Very often there's a constitutional overlay. Um, when you're looking at elections and, and districts, they're very often are regression analyses to look at voting patterns and, and to try and measure something called racially polarized voting, which may impact whether there's an opportunity of, of minority communities to elect candidates of their choice. And so there are all of these different pieces of thinking and disciplines that are coming together. The voting cases are among the most complex type of cases. And, and early on, Frankly, in some ways it seemed almost impenetrable, but, but staying at it and, and digging in and, and, and really spending time on task allowed me to, over time, have an understanding of that area of the law. If you're a good civil rights lawyer, if you're an oral advocate, what you need to do is take the complex thing and make it plain and make it simple. My first constitutional case began with a trip to Texas to meet the clients and, and to identify the clients who would become the parties on whose behalf we would intervene in a case that would end uh, at, at the United States Supreme Court. And I will tell you that there are very different skills involved in meeting people and, uh, and explaining to them that they might care about this issue that may be very meaningful in voting rights and uh, that they may want to think about vindicating uh, based on their interests in having access to the vote. The, the, you know, what those early conversations look like in comparison to preparing yourself to argue a case and to be grilled by the justices of the Supreme Court. They're very different skills, but that's part of what I love about my work is that you get to use those different types of um, skills that you have honed um, over a long period of time, as I have described, inside and outside of the classroom. But the thing that gets my juices flowing is trying to figure out how can you articulate a values principle based in human dignity expressed in the statutes of the United States that are framed by history of pushing to move to become a more inclusive democracy. You know, it, that's the thematic of my career and of my work. And I have carried it through in every position, whether I was in big law, as we call it, or doing it every day, showing up to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, or in government and serving uh, Senator Patrick Leahy from Vermont, who was the then the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee and assisting him with nominations and um, helping to vet the credentials of folks that were called to serve in government 
and working on constitutional questions, including voting rights legislation. And I, and I feel like I didn't know exactly how it would work out because I didn't even really know what it meant to be a lawyer. But what ended up happening is I was placing a bet on what I thought I want to do and, and what, what might be a good bet for me. And I, I did hone the, the skills and the interest and continue on that, on that pathway. But, but I did so in a way that opened up uh, a, an interest and, uh, and really a path to keep, uh, to be a forever learner in a sense. Part of it is of being on a, being on a journey of figuring out how to apply your, your skills and experience in different contexts. And I have found myself willing to sort of go where the, where the fish are biting and go where there is an equality principle that's being contested and, and trying to be resolved and to have, have a comfort in dealing with big problems and um, very high stakes and being willing to be in the arena of grappling with the hard questions. Is it, is it the, uh, the opportunity to have um, economic um, uh, well-being and opportunity? Is it, is it fair lending? You know, is it algorithms, as you know, cut across every industry from, from policing to healthcare to lending to job applications. And so that's an emerging area which sort of brings together different pieces of the story. The, the criminal justice work um, is, is work that I, I love and is so important and, and certainly is a rip from the headlines type of thing. Um, and, and as is the, the police reform work, there has been a continuity of engaging in things that matter and that are valuable and I, I really do feel like my underpinnings as an undergraduate, my studies helped me think about these things as, as well as just having the technical skills, how to write, how to analyze, how to debate, how to speak, how to listen to people, how to not be afraid of things you don't know, but to have confidence in your ability to come to know them, how to digest things quickly, sort out what is the most important information so I, I, I see undergraduate training and, and, my, and my path as having been particularly helpful in what I do every day. It's all informed by understanding the history, understanding the possibility, and understanding what democratic values are and how to give them expression. <laughs>